0: One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com.
1: I'm Robert Colville, editor of CapEx, and today I'll be talking to Lord Lawson. Nigel Lawson is one of the most eminent politicians in the country. As well as having been Chancellor under Margaret Thatcher, he's been editor of The Spectator, a columnist and editor at The Financial Times and Sunday Telegraph, speechwriter to two Prime Ministers, and most recently one of the most influential figures behind the scenes during the Brexit campaign. We'll be looking back on his extraordinary career. And looking forward to what he sees as the biggest challenges and opportunities facing Britain. Matthew Elliott, who led Vote Leave, uh, recently called you one of the sort of forgotten heroes of the campaign, saying that your sort of influence of the Tory party was one of the sort of key factors in attracting support for, for Brexit. I mean why was that something that you were campaigning on so strongly?
2: It was not so much a matter of campaigning. It was deciding to come out in favour of our leaving the European Union. Uh, I formed that view that we'd be better off out we were in a peculiar position anyway of being half in and half out uh, by being in the European Union but outside the monetary union and the single currency so we were half in and half out which showed that we really didn't uh, believe in the project and want to be and I didn't think this was very satisfactory and I decided that we would be better off out if we didn't want to go totally in, uh, which was right not to. And I, I kept my own counsel because for some time because I hadn't seen a way in which we could easily get out until David Cameron's Bloomberg speech, in which he promised that if he was elected there would be a referendum on this. And that meant that there was a real prospect then. Until there, you know, not likely, there was a real prospect. So I decided in early 2013 to come out uh, with my views and say we should, when the referendum happens, we should vote to leave. Uh, I had expressed this view uh, privately and it got to the ears of the editor of the Times. Who asked me if I would write a piece, and I said, "Well, I will uh, on two conditions. I'd like to choose when I think the time is right, and also I want a longer space to, to develop the argument than you customarily give." Uh, and he said, "What's that?" I said, "I want two thousand words. I can't do it in fewer than two thousand words. Can't do justice to it." So he said, "Okay." I chose the time when to do it, and. I was very lucky in the sense that it happened to be a very thin news day. So in addition to the think piece inside the paper, they splashed it on the front page, which uh, fortunately gave it much more impact than it would otherwise have had.
1: But I mean, as Matthew says, that was kind of the the, the dam bursting. So, yes. I mean, Charles Moore says that Lady Thatcher came to the same conclusions at, at, at pretty much the same time, uh, but never. But was told if I if you come out and say this, you will be banished from polite society. No one will That's take you right. seriously. That's right. That's right. I mean, were you conscious that you were kind of breaking a taboo? Absolutely,
2: absolutely. Yes, we live in an age where the blight of political correctness on a whole range of issues is one of the worst things about the present time and this was certainly one of them but I uh, you know it was perhaps easier for me than it was easier for these many people I mean I didn't mind being banished from polite society I couldn't damage my political career because my political career had already (laughs) happened so uh, but it was I was very conscious to use your phrase that I was breaching a taboo Mm.
1: And then during the campaign, or in the run-up to the campaign, you lobbied former ministers, you became chairman briefly of, of Vote Leave.
2: Yes, I, I didn't actually lobby ministers. I My views had been set up in the article in the Times, and when I was talking to my friends, uh, we would sometimes discuss the issue and, and I would uh, explain more fully my position and why I thought it was the right thing for this country. Taking over the uh, as an interim Chairman of uh, Vote Leave happened because I was very concerned uh, the way things were happening in Vote Leave, and I uh, there were a whole lot of problems which I won't go into, and I was worried about it. And I asked Matthew to come and see me here in the Lords' lobby in this room, and he shared my concern and he said well would you be prepared to come in uh, as chairman and sort it out and I said well I'm prepared to come in with two conditions first of all I wanted to bring somebody else in as well onto the board, Michael Forsyth Lord Forsyth, who was an excellent man uh, I needed to have a close ally on the board with me if I was going to be chairman uh, the other thing, I said, I will only do it as an interim thing uh, because I'm too old. I mean, I'm very old. In three weeks' time, I shall be near 90 and 80, and that's old by any standards. And uh, I said that when cabinet ministers are allowed to come out, but you remember what happened, mm. uh, then uh, they should take up the running. Uh, they're the right generation. But I will be prepared to step in uh, on an interim basis until then. So there had been an attempted rebellion, at rebellions, you know. It was an unhappy ship at the time. So the, the, the order was needed and sanity. And there was another thing too, which was very much uh, being talked about, where the media uh, had uh, got it particularly wrong, uh, which the media frequently do. Uh, And that was the, we were being mocked, uh, we on the Leave side, by the virtue of there were two different Leave organisations. The media said this is ridiculous, two different organisations, it's like the Monty Python thing about the Judean People's Front and the People's Front of Judea. uh, that was completely mistaken. There had to be two different organisations because there were two different natures uh, on two different um, sorts of people who were appealing to, and I had to knock the idea of a merger on the head. But of course, that had consequences because our Labour Party friends uh, were very unhappy about these two different groups, and we—it was very important that we didn't seem to be just a a Tory group. And so one of the things I felt the most important thing that I could do, in addition to knocking on the head the idea of a merger, I mean I spoke to the other side and said, look, uh, we shouldn't be firing at each other, but we keep our own separate identities. But I also felt that we had to strengthen the non-Tory representation. And I was able to persuade, and he wouldn't have come on board otherwise. I was able to persuade David Owen, who was no friend of mine, to come onto the to join Vote Leave.
1: Uh, and because he was thinking of setting up his own sort of parallel organisation. Yeah,
2: he had said, "I'd ha- I had. I. He's no friend of mine." Discussions, and he had said that he was going to do his own thing. And I persuaded him when I. Uh, to join that leave. And he said, Well, Nigel, if you're going to be chairman, then I will join vote leave. And that was important. And it was important for another reason. Uh, because and Stewart, I mean, David is ex-Labour, he calls himself, I think, an independent social democrat now. Uh, but he, uh, uh, Giesler remains a Labour and member of Parliament, Gisela had also said she would do her own thing in concert with David. And so when David said he would come on board to leave, he brought Gisela with him, in effect. And that was, I think, useful. And that made it no longer look like it's
1: just a Tory outfit. Yes, and she ends up being one of the, the key. That's right. Teams, the key That's right. figures in, That's the, right. in the team. Mm. So so moving, so moving on to the, to the aftermath of the referendum. I mean, are you sort of happy with how things have gone since? I mean, yeah, obviously, I obviously, leave itself has kind of dwindled away. but oh yes, the, the bat doesn't bat been exist anymore. Yes,
2: no, no. the the, uh, the The ball has been passed to the government, and I think Theresa May is doing a very good
1: job at the moment. And Excellent. T- And I mean, so you said um, that you think sort of no deal would be better than a bad deal. Well, I didn't say that. I mean, I I I was
2: quoting. I mean, that is first of all what Theresa May said, and this was uh, uh, then repeated in the white paper, and uh, that's right, absolutely. So So we're talking about trade deals. I mean, there are other things that have to be discussed, but this is on the key issues of a trade deal. And I don't think uh, uh, a trade deal is possible, certainly not a good one, and no trade deal is better than a bad trade deal.
1: So you, you argue for WTO terms or...? Um yeah, I think
2: that's right, I mean, WTO terms, plus there are, not, uh, the, the, one of the most important things we have to decide is how we are going to conduct ourselves once we are outside the European Union when we are free to take our own decisions. And on the trade front uh, there may well be uh, various tariffs which we will want to decide unilaterally to eliminate. Uh, uh, the foodstuffs which we don't really produce much in this country for
1: coffee example. oranges yeah,
2: that's right i mean the the common agricultural policy has a hugely high tariffs the tariff the average tariff on agricultural products is higher than the average tariff on industrial products under uh, the common external tariff of the European Union and so there may be all sorts of things that that guy want to do because the WTO only tells you the maximum tariffs in effect that you can have. Um, uh, the WTO is the trade agreement, the really matters. This World Trade Agreement, uh, and that gives you a maximum, but any country is free to uh, have something less or zero.
1: Going back, you you, you mentioned that you sort of, you've come to the view that um, Britain should, should you couldn't be half in and half out. But I mean, obviously, as as Chancellor, you're quite closely associated with an attempt to take Britain further in the the shadowing of the Deutschmark no the shadowing of
2: the Deutschmark is quite different it's often misunderstood although I explain it very clearly in my memoirs which I wrote a long long time ago shadowing of the Deutschmark was a financial discipline akin to the old gold standard I was concerned about inflation inflation is influenced although it is monetary policy which which is the policy for getting inflation down, Uh, it is made much harder if inflationary expectations remain high. And because of the inflation that had been, the great inflation in the 1970s, even in the 1980s, inflationary expectation was still, at that time, quite high. And uh, I wanted a discipline which would uh, help to to bring inflationary expectations down, uh, the gold standard, which had done a very good job in the days of the gold standard, in that was no longer, you know, had no longer any credibility. Having a kind of link with the Deutschmark Mark uh, would have, I thought, credibility, but it didn't happen. I mean, because uh, Margaret Thatcher vetoed it, so it never actually happened. But that's what I think. But it, uh, there was nothing. Political about it, nothing about the European Union and, and nothing to do with it. I think people are often confused between that and the common currency, of course the common currency, the single currency, the European currency, which was entirely political, but that didn't happen until our tried being
1: chancellor. And so, and so, your argument on the ERM would be that we joined, not that we—it was a mistake to join, but but we joined too too late at the right and at the wrong level.
2: I think that. Uh, uh, if we had joined at an earlier stage and at the right level, it might have helped in the struggle against inflation, but we didn't, and that's that.
1: Fair enough. So going right back to the beginning, one thing I didn't realise until I began researching this was that your family name, well, originally your uh, family name was, was, was Leibson. That Leibson. Leibson, sorry. That was
2: my paternal grandfather, but that was a long, long time ago. I mean, he came here as a 16-year-old, in the nineteenth century, Queen Victoria on the throne and all that—it was a
1: different age, quite different. Sure, but but the, the thing is, I mean, you are—I mean—at the heart of the establishment. We're we're in the middle of a gorgeously appointed room in the House of Lords. You've, mm-hmm. as I mentioned before, you've edited the Spectator. You went mm-hmm. to Westminster or well, Oxford. You've been mm-hmm. Chancellor of the ex, of the Exchequer. Mm-hmm. Yet you're—I mean—you you mentioned your memoirs. The title of those is "Memoirs of a Tory Radical." Mm-hmm. I mean, have you always had, felt that tension between sort of insider and outsider? establishments and radicalism or have you just sort of followed your own style?
2: I followed my own style I mean I I, I mean I, my father went to Westminster that's why I went to Westminster uh, the uh, but uh, I have always been my own man but I've always been uh, very comfortable in the Conservative Party which I've known for a long time and the Conser- and but I do the, the Conservative Party uh, like big parties tend to be, is itself a kind of a coalition, and I am rather on the sort of uh, radical libertarian wing of the Conservative Party, and uh, in 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 that uh, context, of course, I have a lot in common with Margaret Thatcher.
1: So was this, I mean, were you a sort of cultural Tory, as, as you, because you mentioned your, fa- your father was in finance, or was it a... No, he wasn't in finance.
2: Oh, no, uh, my father was a tea merchant. Uh, and he was a successful tea merchant in the city of London, and had a high uh, reputation there, partly because of his integrity, uh, which was a byword, but also because he had a remarkably fine palate. He could uh, taste tea uh, and tell you exactly where it had come from. Like some people are
1: very good with wine, he was very good with tea. So th- presumably that's something which runs in the family, given your do- your daughter's career.
2: No, I don't think it has anything to do with it. I don't think she uh, is into tea in a big way. But, but presumably she's
1: <laughs> got quite a refined palate,
2: is a... Oh yes, no, she uh, she. Uh, she has her own great strengths, but I don't think there's much in common. I know you like things lit, <laughs> but I don't think there's much in common. That being being a team merchant, I prefer wine. I have to say
1: you didn't start out in politics. You started, out, like many other Tory politicians, uh, you started, and Labour politicians, you started out as as a journalist. Yes, I didn't
2: really know what I wanted to do, but I was always interested in public affairs and public policy. I decided that maybe I would. Uh, go into the Foreign Office. And I uh, sat the examination for the Foreign Office and did very well in the examination. Then there was, after that, the interview stage. And they decided that I wasn't the type to go into the Foreign Office. They were absolutely right. And thank God I didn't, because I had a much more interesting career than if I had gone into the Foreign Office.
1: Did they say why, they, why you
2: weren't the type? No, no, they just gave me a mark, which meant that I nearly got in, but not quite. <laughs> and it meant that I was then subsequently uh, interviewed, which they did at those days, for the Secret Service. Uh, because if you, you would then be in the Foreign Office, you see, but nobody would know that you were a uh, funny. Uh,
1: but I didn't want that. So there's an entire parallel history where you were, you were ambassador to Washington as opposed to. Yeah, anything. but
2: I, well, I didn't. I, I think they were right, and I'm not the foreign, office, the foreign office type. I think they're absolutely right. And and so,
1: where, how did journalism come about?
2: Journalism came about because, uh, at that time, the Financial Times had a very. Uh, 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 as far as the editorial side was concerned about advertising and all that the Financial Times which was a good paper um, had a uh, curious recruitment uh, policy they first of all recruit only men this wouldn't be accepted today Uh, secondly they had to have a first or second class degree but it had to be from either Oxford or Cambridge no other university was acceptable and But if you fit into that category which I did uh, then you would get a uh, better starting salary than you would get in most things at that time. But in particular you would be on a national newspaper. All the other national newspapers expected you to do time on a provincial paper before you could go to...
1: Which was still the case for many years afterwards.
2: That's right. Uh, so uh, there was quite a good group of us, um, Andrew Seanfield, William Rees-Mogg, I mean, these names will not mean... I think William Rees-Mogg still has right. a... Right. Uh, and we all joined. And it was a very good group.
1: And of course, and you then worked your way up, you were City Editor at the Sunday Telegraph, and then become Editor of the Spectator. Yeah, I was City Editor
2: of Sunday when it started. I was quite young. Was I was not then, I was not 30 yet. Uh, and it was the first new... Newspaper, national newspaper, which had started for over 40 years. So that was quite fun. So I could create the city pages um, from scratch, the sort of city pages that I wanted to do. And uh, uh, no, I wasn't sort of succeeding anybody because it was a brand new newspaper.
1: And then and you went to the Spectator, where there'd always been a sort of tradition, I suppose, of people sort of going back and forth from Westminster. There, I mean, some of your predecessors, I think, had
2: then. Yeah, I succeeded Ian McLeod as editor, but that was later. Between the the Sunday Telegraph and the Spectator, I had an excursion into the politics, into political life, which really was what made me decide that I would like to go into politics myself on my own account, uh, and the only reason I didn't do it then and tried to do it then was because I was out of the blue offered to the editorship of The Spectator and it's not something that one turns down lightly so
1: I decided to do that before going into politics So when you say excursion of politics was it standing as an MP? Or? No,
2: I... Uh, it happened by chance like most of the things in my life because I never planned uh, my career I don't believe in planning anyway uh, The... Uh, I was uh, telephoned out of the blue by the then chairman of the Conservative Party Oliver Poole uh, and he said will you come and see me uh, and he said I you know been reading your columns because I did a weekly in addition to uh, editing the city and financial coverage of the paper I did my own column which was largely on usually on economic policy issues, current issues. Uh, he's, I mean and I like them. He said the Prime Minister, that was Harold Mullen, his speeches are getting very dull, very boring, <laughs> and they're like laundry lists. We, we're building so many miles of motorway and building so many houses and so on. It's not very good. Uh, would you be prepared to come along and help him with his speeches? And, and he said, This is just between now and the general election, It was an election due in 1964, and this was. And then after that, I will give you a job in Lazard's. He was also chairman of Lazard's. So I thought, Well, you know, you don't turn down rightly, an opportunity to work for the Prime Minister, and that would be fun. Uh, so I said, Yeah, I'll do that, but I must first of all. I owe it to the paper to find a successor so I can't do it straight away but as soon as I found a successor I'll do it uh, and that took a little time and I did find a successor, a good successor and the but by that time Harold Miller had uh, fallen ill and decided uh, he regretted his afterwards because his doctors uh, let him to believe that his illness was uh far worse than it was and but he was something of a valetudinarian anyway. Uh, and uh he'd resigned and there was uh speech and there wasn't a Prime Minister. Uh anyhow, uh Alec Hume uh became was Chosen to succeed, and he came in. And he was such a fine gentleman that, although he'd inherited me, and we don't I think met once or twice before he didn't know me at all. Well, knew Harold a little bit better. Um, uh, he accepted me, and I worked for Alex throughout his time as Prime Minister, and had a very high regard for him. And then, as that, so I decided that well, maybe politics is what I would want like to do, and then. Uh, instead of going to Lazarus, I was offered the, which if I had gone to Lazarus I would have uh, been much better off financially, but, um, uh, uh, you know, the cause of my life changed because first of all, I'd already thought I'd really want to go to politics, but then I was offered the issue of the spectators, so that's when that came up. I I don't remember. It's you know, it's it's a long time ago, and I remember we're talking about before you were born. I mean, it's uh, it's a long time ago. I don't remember. I no. The my time as uh, uh, city editor of the Sunday Telegraph was very successful. Um, We. Actually, the City Pages initially, the Telegraph wasn't very good because it. everybody else on the Science Telegraph apart from me had come from the Daily Telegraph and they had a slogan at the promoters of the Science Telegraph, the Science Telegraph uh, fills the gap and what they meant was the gap in the market between uh, the stuffy side and the And the tabloids are uh, type journalism. But of course, the joke was yes, it does fill the gap between the Saturday Daily Telegraph and the Monday Daily Telegraph. Uh, uh, But the. And I did something completely different and uh, it became very successful and it kept the paper afloat in the early. Almost, if you look in the early years of the Sunday Telegraph, almost the only advertising they got was financial advertising because the city column, city pages were very successful. Uh, as an editor of The Spectator, I think probably uh, the most successful thing I did, uh, but I think it was a good paper uh, then, as it is a good paper now, uh, The was to get this, uh, this is a rather minority appeal, but nevertheless it appealed to me and it appealed to a number of readers, get this uh, new columnist Mercurius Oxoniensis, which was the pen name of Hugh Trevor Roper that was kept great secret at the time and he wrote in a sort of mock uh, uh, 17th century English in the style of John Aubrey and it was a pastiche which he did absolutely brilliantly and it's it's uh, uh, the, these articles have been published in book form I mean they're really very great. So as uh, I said it I think that was the uh, thing that
1: uh, made me happiest. And what sort of qualities do you think being a journalist gave you as as a politician? Um, I mean b- both you and and others who have made including a, another former editor of The Spectator who made the same you know Michael, well as Boris Johnson, Michael Gove. Yeah, well, there are
2: similarities, aren't there? Because you're uh, uh, involved with the same issues, and you are also uh, uh, have to work to deadlines. I mean, when you have to make a speech in the House of Commons, uh, you have to get the get your speech right and uh, right on the night or on the day or whatever it is. Uh, that is not all that different from having to write a
1: uh, column and and once you got into parliament did it take you a while to sort of find and I also knew of course
2: uh, there's another uh, read across if you are an editor of the Spectator for example uh, you get to know a large number of politicians and de- therefore, you are
1: already, before you go into the House of Commons, au fait with the political world. So, you weren't, so when you get into the Parliament, you're not starting from, from scratch. You already have a base of acquaintances. And Absolute.
2: And of course, you are a target because you're known. I mean, most people, when they go into the House of Commons, are not widely known. If you've been a spectator then you are quite well known so you become a target people want to take you down a peg or two uh, in a way that the ordinary new member doesn't experience House Commons can be quite a rough place and as I said there is normally a, a, an indulgence shown to new members but it's not the case if you're uh, already a minor public figure
1: So, things like speaking time or uh, committee appointments and.
2: No, not that. No, no, it's. uh, it's uh, No, I think it's not that so much. It is uh, the uh, attempt to ridicule you, your opponents attempt to ridicule you in your debate and so on. Uh, But that's all right. And and I decided uh, that. Uh, I would make a new name for myself by concentrating on Prime Minister's questions Mm -hmm. Harold Wilson was Prime Minister at the time and he uh, fancied himself, Prime Minister's questions, as being very smart and having all the answers and so I enjoyed getting under his skin and so that was a new thing and he actually I think at one point said that I was his
1: toughest questioner or whatever But you weren't doing the whole Ed Balls thing of um, hand gestures and, uh, and cheering from the opposition benches
2: No the, in my day the House of Commons was a thoroughly polite and well-mannered
1: place So uh, did you sort of gravitate fairly quickly towards the Thatcherite element of, of the party the sort of, the, the, sort of, the sort of as you said libertarian
2: uh, Oh way. yes I was um, quite clear that uh, uh, Ted Heath, who was the uh, leader when I, the third party when I got in, uh, uh, and who I knew very well, I'd worked for him at the time. I'd taken another uh, time outside journalism uh, when I was asked uh, by Douglas Hurd, who was at that time, his political <laughs> secretary. Uh, if I would come and help Ted when he was Prime Minister. So I did that. But it was quite clear to me that for all his uh, qualities he was a disastrous leader. We need a new leader and that uh, Margaret Thatcher was the best choice.
1: But did you have the sort of economic diagnosis at this point? I mean, were you, mm-hmm. did you have the sort of economic diagnosis at this point? Did you sort of feel that Britain needed a, a rupture with the past? I did feel that
2: we needed to go towards a market economy in the fullest sense and a financial discipline which was getting on top of inflation, which was the measure. And I was always, right the way uh, from my time, writing these articles acidity of the Sunday Telegraph I was an opponent of incomes policies which was at that time considered the way in which you dealt with inflation but inflation was a problem throughout the 60s a growing problem uh, the, that uh, incomes policy was not the answer pay policy was not the answer uh, it had huge adverse effects and didn't actually deal with the inflationary problem and uh, financial discipline, uh, both monetary and fiscal.
0: One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's, a, it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care.
1: And was this sort of the result of, I guess, had you sort of read, your, read into the subject? I mean, was this a sort of first principles thing from reading Friedman or Hayek or whoever, or was it just the result of practical experience?
2: Well, I, look, I had some knowledge of economics because I had read PPE at uh, Oxford. Uh, my my specialist subject was was philosophy. I specialised in philosophy. It was on the strength of my philosophy papers, not my economics papers, that I got my first. Uh, But nevertheless, uh, you had to do a certain amount of economics, so I was uh, aware of what uh, the economic arguments were and what economists were saying and the curious language they spoke. Uh, And uh, then I learned much more, I think. That gave me a grounding. And then going on to the Financial Times, which at that time had a really a monopoly of financial journalism. Uh, that had all changed, but at that time, uh, the city pages of the other newspapers were just stock market tip sheets. Uh, the there was no economic It was only, it was only the and that was only financial times had a de facto monopoly there. And so I was invited everywhere, uh, particularly when I became Lex, um, uh, to all the city people, the banks and so on, because they wanted to to influence the Financial Times. And and, uh, so I learnt a lot uh, on the job, on the FT,
1: in the 50s. Well, which leads us nicely to you becoming Chancellor, where you actually have an opportunity to put this into practice. That's
2: right, that's right. No, I, I felt when I became Chancellor, I was very lucky, I, I, I didn't expect Margaret to make me Chancellor, um, because I was a slightly unconventional uh, figure, but fortunately she was an unconventional Prime Minister, and we got on, we, you know, our views were very, very similar, And but I did feel that all my career so called leading up to that had in a sense been a
1: preparation for being Chancellor I mean what would you say your biggest legacy is as, as Chancellor
2: well I suppose that the uh, I think the single biggest thing but I, well, it doesn't just do one thing was the
1: uh, radical reform of the tax system so yes, this is one of something I wanted to ask because you make the, you made these sweeping changes. Yes, and effectively the system we're now left with, where no one pays more than about forty percent tax, and the bans have been simplified, is mm-hmm. is the one you left. I mean,
2: uh, to a large extent, yes, yes. and and it, it's remained completely intact. I mean, it's been changed, say remaining completely for something like twenty years, which was quite surprising because at the time. It was hugely controversial. Indeed, the, the the 1988 budget was the only time in the whole history of this country when the Speaker had to suspend the sitting uh, because of uproar in the...
1: Because you were lowering trend- lowering the higher rates? Yes. But, I mean, mm-hmm. that's not the, the only dramatic budget moment you no. have. But the, the, the year before, you're standing there two weeks after the stock market has... That's right. I mean, how do you cope with something like that?
2: Well, you have to. Uh, you have to create confidence. The problem with the stock market uh, crash was there was a whole lot of people, including William rees Mark incidentally, who were talking about it. He was writing in the Sunday Times. I think it may really have been the Times. I think it was the Sunday Times that I can't remember which it was. Uh, saying that this is 1929 all over again, uh, and uh, there was a, a lot of concern, uh, and businesses were aborting all their investment plans, and of course these things could could snowball, and it was very necessary to create an atmosphere of calm confidence. Uh, because it was quite clear to me that this was uh, a correction, uh, market, and this was uh, caused uh, by a whole lot of uh, market problems. But there was nothing uh, fundamentally amiss with the world economy. The world economy is not imperfect, Nick. It never is. Uh, but uh, it was a stock market phenomenon rather than an economic phenomenon and therefore it was my job to create an atmosphere of confidence which I think to a considerable extent I did Uh, and it was uh, and I made uh, one or two speeches that time outside the House of Commons which uh, the opposition in the resented, because they think Parliament's where you were But I had to do a big thing at the, at the stock exchange.
1: And, um, and uh, in, in, in 88, similarly, was it just that the opposition benches were infuriated, or was there a sort of wider feeling in the country that this was the Tories favouring the rich? And
2: The economy was doing well, and uh, the, that is really what determines public opinion. If, 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 if the economy is doing well, and if people's incomes are rising, and we've been through a terrible time in the uh, 1970s, which is uh, what caused uh, the Labour government to uh, be beaten and Margaret to come in in 1979. I began straight away, you know, she made me a financial secretary right from the word going in 1979, and people by that time had had appreciated that things had got a lot better in the 1980s than they were in the 1970s. So there was a, you know, there was on the whole uh, goodwill, and we just won the 1987 election. Uh, on with a, uh, I mean, it was quite remarkable, the third in a row. Uh, we won 1979, not because of anything Margaret did, because people were up askance at the idea of a woman prime minister, it would it never happened. Uh, but uh, the people would, people formed of clear opinion, uh, in so one can say this, that, that Labour had had its day and so she got in, in a sense, by default. But then the, the that first term, uh, 1981, uh, 1979 to 1983, was uh, a successful period, the economy began to turn around, and so re-elected then, and then things got even better between 83 and 87, and uh, uh, for the third election in a row, Uh, she won so we were in a strong position in 1988 and I decided to do the controversial thing in 1988 because it's common sense that if there's anything controversial you want to do you do it in the beginning of a parliament uh, when the next election is a long way off uh, so that you will not be judged by the uh Measures, but you'll be judged by the outcome of those measures. And if the outcome of those measures is satisfactory, then that's fine.
1: And in this case, that was a higher rates tax. Yes,
2: so and and there were other things too. Uh, I mean, but, but they're all set out in my memoirs. But I think that uh, and I did a huge amount of tax simplification. Uh, I lowered a lot of tax rates and abolished the number of taxes and still managed to, which seems odd if you look at it today, uh, balance the, the, the books and in fact got a surplus on the public accounts.
1: So, is there anything you did as Chancellor that you now look back on and regret or that you, you wish you'd done? I don't look back. Fair enough, apart from in this, <laughs> this interview. Mm-hmm. Um, so obviously you, you've touched on it before but a, a huge part of the job of a Chancellor is dealing with the Prime Minister and your own relationship with Margaret Thatcher is extremely well uh, well chronicled. I mean, what do you think the sort of key a- attributes are for that relationship to work and how, how well do you think it's worked in the years since?
2: Well, there are two, uh, there are obviously two things which are desirable. One is a similarity of views I mean, as I said, Margaret Thatcher and I both had a similar you know, uh, were uh, a in a similar part of the spectrum of views that is the Conservative Party so there's a similarity of perspective and outlook and views and the other thing is personal compatibility and although I fell out with her uh, at the end Uh, that was after a long time of working very closely together starting in opposition in fact um, and then throughout our time in government Uh, and uh, there was a you know, although our personalities were quite different, we got on very well
1: And what have been the most successful partnerships since?
2: Well, I think the uh, uh, the been a wide range I mean the closest one I think possibly it uh, may have with the wisdom of hindsight been too close uh, the closest one was between David Cameron and George Osborne
1: and I've been told you're more of an admirer of the of the the, tra- the Chancellor in that in that arrangement than the Prime Minister
2: now, I think that David Cameron moulded himself on Tony Blair Uh, It was all about image, whereas George does like to think things through. Uh, He has a much more uh, intellectual approach, he's political at his fingertips, but he does have this, uh, he is uh, seriously interested in analysing economic issues. At the end of the day of course he always deferred to David. Uh, but uh, he uh, he did a number of good things
1: George In terms of shrinking the size of the public sector sticking mm-hmm. to deficit reduction it is, right. you could you could have sort of gone into a gilded retirement in the, in the Lords um, after you leave office um, instead you set up the Global Warming Policy Foundation and yes. make yourself a target for uh, all manner of criticism. I that's mean, right. you've been called a, a, a climate change Britain's leading climate change skeptic, Britain's leading climate change denier. Uh, essentially, there's a lot of people who very, very strongly disagree with you on this. I mean, why, why get in, involved in that world? I've
2: become interested in this new issue that's come up, uh, climate change, which hadn't, hadn't, didn't cross my desk, didn't cross our desk in government really at all when it was in government
1: yeah. I mean Thatcher yeah. makes a famous speech about greenhouse gases and the need to conserve the planet as a conservative cause yeah well yes
2: um, she is not quite in those terms but she does make this uh, uh, speech uh, and we, said we sh- which she was saying we want to know more about it we must be careful about this uh, but there were no policy implications at all. She's just that we need mm. to know more. So we ha- we it wasn't an issue at that time at all. And I don't like I'm not one to look back at all. I like to I like to look forward and new things. So I thought I must find out about this climate change thing. I must educate myself. Um, at that time I was a member of the economic affairs Commit- to the committee of this house and we had to decide what our s- subject you look at and I suggested uh, to my colleagues that we should look into the economics of climate change I knew nothing about the subject at the time I, I was trying to learn about it and uh, so we did an inquiry a rather good inquiry I think in the economics of of climate change, and it was clear to me, I I had initially taken the whole thing at its face value, but I just didn't know about it, and I discovered that the whole thing was a great deal more complex, Uh, and that a lot of people had been talking a lot of nonsense. So I decided to write a book about it. Uh, because of this blight of political correctness, because the, the the problem with with the whole climate change thing is that it is not only this stultifying political correctness, but it has become for many people a kind of uh, substitute religion, and. Uh, you know, I believe in rational analysis. I don't like this quasi-religious approach to these issues. Uh, so, I, I, based on what I'd learned and past further research I'd done, learned uh, doing this House of Lords inquiry into the economics of climate change, I wrote this book, which, mm. uh, no, because of these political correctness no British publisher would touch quite extraordinary Uh, and despite the fact that I'd already had three books out and all done well and never had any difficulty finding a publisher But on this no British publisher would touch it eventually my daughter Nigella who was a successful author uh, said well why don't you try my agent and uh, and I got in touch with him and he didn't want to upset her by not finding a publisher. So he managed to find uh, a, a smallish independent American publisher who had an even smaller British subsidiary and they published it. And it became a bestseller and was uh, rather comically it became the, in the on Amazon's list of the 10 best-selling environmental books, because that was the category, of the decade. Uh, and it was on the back of the success of that book that I found a think tank. A number of people said, well, Nigel, you can't just leave it here, you must, you must carry on and write another book. And I thought, well, uh, you know, what would another book add to what I'd already written? uh it would not add a great deal add something but I had my say and done it uh, quite briefly uh, and so that it could be easy to read I decided I'd start a think tank which is what I did we have a first class full-time director Benny Pizer, and it has achieved I think a position which is well-known throughout the English-speaking world, and indeed perhaps something on the continent of Europe as Europe's well. world. There's no other think tank like us. We're the only think tank, there are other think tanks which are of well, a wider compass of interests, and do things on climate change from time to time, but we're the only one that does that, exclusive. that's one subject.
1: And, I mean, what's your sort of... Your, your objection on this, it's the, is it the amounts of money that are going to be spent?
2: So, uh, the title of my book was An Appeal to Reason and that has always been what I'm about and it's about looking at this thing rationally instead of in this emotional and quasi-religious way. Let us look at this thing rationally. Um, what is the evidence and what are the policies if any one should implement? And the uh, what are the consequences of the policies that we are committed to, and are trying to And I think it is absolutely intolerable that we are uh, pursuing policies which are, have completely messed up uh, energy policy in this country. Which, they are, which imposes a quite unnecessary burden on British business and industry and the economy. And in particular, it imposes a huge burden on the individual households, particularly poor households, who are having to pay far more for their energy uh, than they need pay, and to no good effect whatever. Just so that people can, can prance around uh, saying what a wonderful example the United Kingdom is setting
1: So you have no objection to renewable energy if it was priced oh, cheaper you, than...
2: No, I'm uh, very happy uh, Look, the reason we use fossil fuels is because they are the cheapest and most reliable form of energy that exists If uh, one day there will be, I'm sure uh, some great technological breakthrough and I'm all for uh, research being done, a lot of research is being done, and you'll do find uh, something else which is uh, equally uh, cheap and and reliable, or maybe even more so. Fine, but but the object of energy policy, I think, ought to be to to um, uh, provide the cheapest and most reliable source of energy. Uh, available. Uh, that is both uh, there is both in economic sense, and it, and it is absolutely vital for the poor, including the poor in the developing world, incidentally, who are even poorer than the poor people in this country. And the the uh, and uh, the, this uh, uh, great. Uh, uh, grandstanding, uh, I think at the expense of, of the, the ordinary people, I think is, is appalling. Unfortunately I have a very good group, excellent, uh, Harry also is very much part of it, and I have the most eminent board of trustees of any charitable outfit in the country. Uh, it, and it, it's, uh, you know, I think it is in a small way uh, making an impact. So I'm very glad that I that I did that.
1: And you sp- said repeatedly in this interview that you prefer to look forward. So yeah. let's end with two questions that do that. Um, the first one is: energy prices aside, what are the sort of big? problems or challenges that you see in terms of the British economy um, as we by the time this comes out Philip Hammond will have delivered his oh. spring budget there's obviously inflation is rising productivity the deficits I mean what what do you see the sort of
2: well aside from energy policy which as I say is a mess and that, that does have economic uh, consequences I rather share the view I don't know whether you've read Mervyn M- King's book which he brought out I think last year called the end of Alchemy, and uh, his position is that the flaws in the banking system which led to the terrible meltdown in 2008 have not really been addressed properly and I think he's right I think that the uh, banking sector still needs uh further policy changes
1: and what sort of changes would those be
2: well one change which I think is that I mean in a sense the uh, government uh, well, this country the government the last government George Osborne accepted the analysis but he uh, didn't uh, I think reached the right conclusion I understand why he didn't because he set up a committee and the committee uh, got the wrong answer and he just followed what they did that's the Vicious Committee uh, the I think it is essential to separate out um, what used to be known as high street banking or, or with uh, what used to be called merchant banking and it's nowadays called investment banking I think they are quite different, not only are they different activities, but the cultures of the two are different, very different, Uh, and the the investment banking is a sort of go-go risk taking culture, nothing wrong with that, but the the, the conventional banking, high street banking, commercial banking, needs to be a very prudent and cautious and conservative uh, approach quite the opposite, and I think you need a complete separation now uh, the what the government has introduced is a so called ring fence between the two, but they 're not separate. The, you know, the, 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 the organisations are still yes. a single organisation, and I don't think that's workable.
1: Well, the, the analogy of, I, I, I like best is the idea that you've, um, a city has decided to hold a Grand Prix race on its streets, but it's mm. still left one lane open to commuter traffic. Right,
2: well, maybe, but I'm not sure. Uh, I'd have to think about that. But I, I think that, the, that it is, uh, as I said, the, the, the whole creation of the ring fence. Implies an acceptance of the difference between the two kinds of banking but the idea that you can have a ring fence within a single organisation I think it means that you don't get this complete separation of the two cultures which is of the first importance and it also I think produces an unworkable government structure we're at risk of a further banking collapse and we haven't fully recovered and not when I say we it's not just this country it's around the world, but of course, it's particularly important for this country because the banking sector, as a proportion of the economy, is particularly large in this country, and that's potentially a strength. But it's also, of course, if it's not if it if it goes wrong, it's a sort of weakness. And I mean, do you think this is your next great cause? Well, I've done enough about that. I think I was on the parliamentary commission on banking standards and did my best there. Now I'm too old to have any more great causes. And anyhow, the uh, sanity on the global warming front is a battle where we're winning very slowly but we haven't yet won. I mean we're winning in the sense that uh, I think that the public are now uh, don't buy into this at all. It's, a, it's the political class, the chattering class. Um, who buy into it the general public don't all the opinion polls it's not surprising I mean, if you look actually hard at the evidence uh, which of course these people don't because it's a religion and if, you, if it's a religion uh, you know you don't bother about evidence what the records seem to suggest is that since records first began uh, the uh, which which is about 150 years ago and the uh, that is actually quite a neat timing because the industrial revolution was about 150 years ago so it's also it's not just the period since the records began but it's also the period since the industrial revolution that uh, mean average global temperature has risen by one degree Centigrade, an awful lot in 150 years. And even the past 20 years, it has uh, slowed down. Even that very slow rate of increase has slowed down further. So uh, the idea that you can't cope with this by adapting to whatever is happening, particularly when modern technology gives you the capacity to adapt. Uh, far greater than we've ever had before and that instead you have to persuade people to use expensive and unreliable energy instead of cheap and reliable energy I mean it's lunatic and so I'm not surprised that the uh, that the public at large and indeed a growing number of newspapers have bought into this very uh, really large. Think. Think it's uh, you know when people say the greatest threat facing the world uh, is climate change. If only it were.
1: Well, there's Donald Trump.
2: <laughs> well, Donald Trump is here today and gone tomorrow. The the the, um, the um, uh, important issues are issues which have a longer. Impact. I mean, this is why I get slightly cross when people uh, bracket the Brexit move with Donald Trump. Because uh, Donald Trump is just one president in a line of a whole range of presidents of of, uh, different uh, character and nature. Uh, Whereas the Brexit decision is a fundamental and historic. And long-term turning point and the climate change issue also is something of which is an enduring uh, issue and uh, the question of who happens to be president of the united states at the time is not uh, without interest but it is not on the
1: same level lord lawson thank you very much thank you thank you for listening to free exchange from capex i'm robert colville capex editor And I hope I'll see you again next week. If you like this, please subscribe.
0: When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com.